This program is brought to you by PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. To learn more about this podcast, visit pli.edu slash pro bono podcast. Today, we have a special kind of episode. Since it's the season for new associates to start at their firms and for on-campus interviewing at law schools, we set out to build a guide one that would support people on their pro bono journey. We just know that people have a lot of unanswered questions about pro bono, or they might not even know what questions they should have. Since my one and only on-campus interview ended with the firm partner asking me, why are you here? And me saying, I don't know. I knew I could not be a subject matter expert on the experience of doing pro bono at a traditional law firm. So we reached out to some friends of the pod and got the advice of three successful attorneys with a deep commitment to pro bono work. Welcome to Pursuing Justice, the Pro Bono Files a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute, in which lawyers and clients talk candidly about their pro bono experiences. I'm your host, Alicia Aiken, and for 15 years, I was a legal services attorney in Chicago. Now, I'm a principal at Danu Center for Strategic Advocacy, a national organization supporting advocates and mission-based organizations in their own pursuit of social justice. I'm also a faculty fellow at PLI, where I get to work on special projects like this podcast. These three have never met each other that we know of. One is in Michigan, one is in California, and one is in Hawaii. Two are partners. One is an associate and a former Skadden fellow. Two, you may remember from previous episodes. And the third... She seems destined to be featured in the future. I'll let them properly introduce themselves. My name is Albert Pack. I am a senior associate at Bodman PLC, which is a Michigan-based business law firm, and I'm currently working out of their Ann Arbor office. Prior to my time at Bodman, I was at Michigan Community Resources as a Skadden Fellow and Attorney. My name is Claire Wong Black. I am a commercial litigator out in the Honolulu office of Denton's. My name's Matt Kaplan. I'm a partner in the litigation group in Cooey's San Francisco office. What amazed me is just how much they agreed with each other, independently raising the same points in totally separate interviews. And they were insightful points, things that hadn't occurred to me before, even after several years of doing this pro bono podcast. So I organized them into a top 10 list. If you are a 2L headed to on-campus interviewing, a new associate just getting started, or at any point in your career and trying to jumpstart your pro bono, I think you'll find these 10 tips very helpful. Number 10. You can figure out how serious a firm is about pro bono beyond the marketing talk. Claire, Matt, and Albert all had useful tips 
on how to suss out the real culture around pro bono in a firm. How do people know whether the firm values pro bono work equally to to billable work? It's really difficult to tell. You know, when you when you look at law firm websites, no matter how, you know, even if your eyeballs deep in vault or whatever else information is being put out there and you've, you've looked at all the firms, they all have that page that talks about how they're committed to pro bono. They all have the page where they talk about how they are committed to diversity. And I think one of the only things you can do is to talk to people, to talk to people at the firm, to talk to people in the community, to talk to you know, other pro bono organizations. So I think there's a couple different ways you could look at that and figure out how you and the firm can derive value from the, the pro bono practice. You know, the first and most obvious is just looking at how the firm gives credit for work you do on, on pro bono matters. Some firms might set a, a cap, you know, you will get billable equivalent credit up to a certain number of hours. Certain firms like Cooley do not have any caps on the amount of billable credit you get for your pro bono work. And other firms have something that's sort of in between. That at the most base level, I think, tells you how views their pro bono practice and your participation in the pro bono program. And I think the resources beyond sort of the billable equivalents you get for your pro bono work that a firm puts into their pro bono practice goes a long way towards telling you how the firm views it. So if you've got people who are dedicated to working on pro bono at a firm, that's a great sign. If you go and look at the firm's, you know, marketing materials, their website, and get a sense of the types of pro bono work they're doing and who they're working with on a pro bono basis, that's also going to tell you how, how they value it. So if you see a firm that's doing a lot of impact litigation, and that's like a full-blown case, like any other fee-generating case, it's the same resources that go into that. Again, it's a good sign that the firm's going to take your participation in the pro bono practice seriously. I think another great resource is, especially if you're in law school or just joining a firm, talk to people that you know working at the firm. Talk to people who went to your law school who are at the firm the last couple of years and get a sense of what it's really like to be there. I distinctly remember asking about pro bono during my interview, you know, mentioning how it's an important part. If I recall correctly, I believe it was, you know, the interviewers, my two practice group leaders at the time who told me about their own pro bono experiences and, and, and what they contribute to the firm. So I think that for me, what was important was getting just a firsthand, you know, kind of firsthand experience and, and, and accounting for how that policy was put into practice. Mm-hmm. Number nine, have a vision for how you want to use pro bono to meet your goals. I promise I didn't ask, should people have a vision for pro bono? But when we ask the open-ended question, what do you wish you'd known when you started? All three brought up this idea that new associates should have a plan, a plan for pro bono and a plan for where it fits into their career and professional development. Given his work as a Scadden Fellow, Albert had a well-developed sense of pro bono when he joined his firm. But even with that knowledge, there are things he has learned after a year as an associate. I came into my position kind of in a unique fashion. I had been on the other side of pro bono for a few years, you know, trying to match firm attorneys with pro bono opportunities at MCR. But after coming to Bodmin, I began to see a little bit more of 
what goes on behind the scenes from the firm's perspective. I guess what I wish I had known about pro bono before stepping into my role is I wish I had been a little bit more deliberate in terms of the the vision for my pro bono practice that I had before starting. When you start at a firm, things come at you really fast. You you meet a ton of partners and associates. You you have obviously a good amount of work and you add pro bono on top of that and suddenly you you have kind of a full plate from the get-go. I think starting your role with a clear understanding of the pro bono opportunities that are available at the firm and maybe not necessarily a vision, but uh, some sort of anticipation for what you want your pro bono practice to look like could could pay dividends. So when you say you think it helps to come in with a vision of what you want your pro bono to be, what do you think are some of the elements that people could think of in advance that would help them to construct that vision? I think at the highest level, I think thinking about how you want to allocate your pro bono time between matters that are specifically in line with your existing billable practice and you know what types of matters you want to take on that might be outside of your comfort zone. So for example, at Bodmin, a good chunk of my pro bono practice revolves around matters that are in the exempt organization space. So I work with a lot of nonprofits on formation, contract review. I also help small businesses on transactional legal matters. So that I would broadly categorize as matters that kind of further my you know, practice and development in, in an area in which I'm comfortable. I also make a deliberate effort to do things that I normally wouldn't take on. So I've taken on, you know, expungements where I've even had to be on a Zoom call with the judge and and kind of, you know, understand and learn a little bit more of the inner workings of that field. I've volunteered at various clinics where, you know, I'm helping people navigate questions around getting their driver's license or or certain government benefits and, you know, questions and issues that I don't really come across in my day to day. So I think determining what a balance between matters that you you feel confident taking on as well as matters that kind of take you outside of your comfort zone and, and deciding how you want to split that up as a kind of first order of, of practice. And Matt's advice was startlingly similar. I, I think in terms of how you view pro bono, especially when you first start, it's thinking about it as a personal choice and having a goal and sort of figuring out what you want to get out of your pro bono practice, what goals you have for your practice in general, and how pro bono work can help you achieve them. And you are the second person who has said to us, have a plan, which is very interesting because I think when I've talked to people who are considering going to firms or incoming at firms, they don't, I'm not sure they understand that they can be in charge of their pro bono. They're thinking more of it as if they're like, receiving permission or receiving opportunities. And so to hear two of you now say, no, this is yours. Like, you should have a plan. This is the one place in your firm life where you actually can design what you do, and you should grab that opportunity. I, I think that's right. And that resonates with me because when we have these meetings with new, new associates, it always it's always striking to them that they could be entrepreneurial in their pro bono practice that, you know, we're receptive to them bringing these opportunities 
to us rather than just sort of relying on the firm to provide them with pro bono opportunities. When we talked to Claire, she reflected on just how entrepreneurial she was when she started at her firm. So I, I started in New York City as a first year associate. I was two months pregnant, hadn't told anyone, and I showed up at the firm saying, I want to do pro bono asylum work. I had gone to law school at Fordham, and then I maybe did not enjoy law school as much as some. But in my second year, I took a clinic, and it was with legal aid doing housing. And this was Section 8 housing, enforcing the warranty of habitability. And going up to you know Upper Manhattan on the east side, and seeing Section Eight housing where you know the roofs were just crumbling, and you could see rats running around, you could see the person showering, you know, in the apartment upstairs. And that work that was the first time that I felt really interested and engaged, and thought that law could be something that I could do as a profession and have sort of a fulfilling career. And then I think Lavender Law was in New York while I was in law school. And I ended up going to a presentation at Immigration Equality. And Immigration Equality is a nonprofit headquartered in New York that does a lot of work. But the work that I ended up doing with them was gay asylum cases. I showed up at the firm and really wanted a partnership with Immigration Equality so that we could do some of these asylum cases. And I was really lucky to find a partner, Deborah Renner, who was willing to be the partner who created this relationship with immigration equality. Number eight, get started on your pro bono early in your career. I've been struck by how consistently people say start early. And that is true across the spectrum of people we've interviewed over the years. You may remember Jessica in our episode on designing a fulfilling life in the law. She told us that a partner called her on the first day of orientation and invited her to jump into a pro bono matter. And Jeremy, from our episode on pro bono responses to natural disasters, he encouraged people to build an expectation of pro bono hours into their schedule from the very beginning. That theme carried through when we talked with Claire, as you just heard, and with Matt. I think it's great to get a start on pro bono early in your career, uh, especially when you're just joining a firm, your overall workload might be pretty uneven. Uh, on the litigation side, you're waiting to get fully staffed on cases. And that's really a function of new cases coming in or the scope of existing cases expanding. Uh, I'm sure it's pretty similar on the transactional side with deal flow. Uh, so up until the time that you're sort of fully staffed on cases, you're going to be getting more one-off assignments that are less consistent than having a full workload. And pro bono is a great way to fill in some of those gaps, make sure you've got enough work to do, and also start developing skills that are going to pay dividends in your fee-generating practice. And when we look at what Albert has done in his practice, well, we see he also started early. He's been at his firm for a little over a year. He is on track for 100 pro bono hours this year. And he has joined the firm-wide pro bono committee. Number seven, doing great pro bono work can advance your career at the firm. Also, people ask this question about, how do I put this? Should I be deciding what kind of pro bono I should do? Or should I be trying to assess what kind of pro bono the firm wants me to do? 
I think you should do the type of pro bono work that you're committed to and that you can do a good job on. You know, that brings the authenticity to the table. And I think bringing your authentic self to your workplace is always going to be the thing that most advances your overall career. I think there's a lot of fear out there that expressing an interest in pro bono will hurt people. And I, again, have never worked in a firm, so I have no sense of how much that's a myth or, or a rational fear. But there's a definitely a fear. And I think that fear is even worse for attorneys who are women of color, that there's a concern that they will not be perceived as serious or, you know, here for the long run. I think that showing a curiosity about the practice of law and how a firm operates is a healthy thing. We're looking to grow career lawyers, people who love the practice of law, who will be doing it side by side with us for decades to come. People that you want to, you know, be in the foxhole with on the eve before trial. I mean, that's what we're looking for. And and any indication that somebody is a whole lawyer who is really interested in the practice of law, whether it's for a pro bono client or a commercial client, I think it's a good thing. It's a positive in my book. Maybe you're not sure you buy that an interest in pro bono advances your career in a traditional firm. But remember, Claire is the one who walked in the door wearing her pro bono heart on her sleeve. And she is also a successful litigation partner at Denton's in Honolulu. Matt also highlighted the importance of pro bono work to his success in becoming a partner at his firm. Um, I know from interviewing you before that pro bono has been an important part of your work um, from the beginning and uh, that you have been very involved in work for veterans. How do you think your pro bono work impacted or didn't impact your ability to become partner in, you know, in a timeline and in a way that you wanted to become partner? I think my pro bono practice was helpful in becoming partner at at Cooley. You know, we have a really holistic view of what associates are doing and also how partners are compensated at the firm that takes into account things like firm citizenship, pro bono work. And so, honestly, it probably would have been somewhat of a red flag if there was a big zero in the pro bono column for me or anyone else going through the partner nominating process here. It's, you know, something we we look at to see, you know, are are you dedicated to the firm? Number six, your pro bono work can improve your performance and marketability to your billable clients. It actually goes back to the core question of what I wish I had known as a brand new associate, which is, you know, I didn't anticipate as a brand new associate how well pro bono would enhance and complement my commercial practice. I thought of pro bono as something I did in addition to, but separate from my commercial work. And I I didn't understand that, number one, the hard skills that I got doing pro bono were going to really enhance the work that I was able to do. And then the substantive skill set as well. You know, people come to me specifically because they see on my bio that I've sued the state of Hawaii multiple times and brought class actions in addition to individual cases. And what are the hard skills that you think that you really picked up through pro bono? The third asylum case that I did 
was for a gay man from Serbia. And that case, we went to immigration court and I did a full, a full day trial in front of an immigration judge. And that was my first trial. I believe I was a second or third year associate at the time, hauled down to immigration court by myself, you know, had a lot of support from supervising partners, but I, I, I did it. And that is, mm-hmm. you know, an experience that not a lot of people get early in their careers depositions, expert depositions, 30B6s, all, all those little things that, you know, you need to understand the nuts and bolts of before you walk into a situation. Most of those I got experienced first in a pro bono case and then later in a, in a commercial case. Claire isn't the only one who recognizes the value of pro bono for building capacity to do billable work. Matt sees it too. I, I would look at pro bono as a, a resource the firm has to, to offer you. And I think you can look at it sort of three ways. You could look at your pro bono practice in terms of making a decision to work with people or or causes that are personally meaningful for you. You can look at pro bono practice as a way to develop your substantive skills in a way that's going to benefit your day-to-day practice. And you could also look at pro bono as an opportunity to do something that you're interested in that might not come up in your regular practice. How much do you think the partners or decision makers in the firm are paying attention to how to your work performance in pro bono and factoring that into how they assess you for the firm's traditional work. So I, I think who's ever supervising you on a pro bono case is going to give you the same level of attention and feedback that they would on any other case or, or project. Or ideally, you're putting in the same effort you are on your pro bono cases as you are in any other work you're going to do. And you could use that as a way to develop these skills. You know, a lot of times when we've got client demands, they're going to want someone who's taken the deposition before, made an oral argument in court before, done something before. And it's really helpful if someone could raise their hand and say, yep, I've already taken the deposition. No one's going to ask if it was in a pro bono case. No one's going to get into the details. You're able to say, yes, I've done that. And, and that's sort of the credibility you need to get opportunities sometimes. And that's not necessarily a firm decision. A lot of the times it's coming from the, the client side. They're the ones who are saying, we need someone who's done this before. And so using pro bono opportunities to be able to do things and raise your hand later is really great and helpful. And don't fall into the trap of thinking that only litigators sharpen their skills through pro bono. Albert specializes in transactional and corporate governance work. I think there's a lot of different kind of nexuses you can find between what you're doing and pro bono opportunities that you might not have anticipated before. So, for example, if you're a business attorney reviewing contracts or, or kind of helping with general corporate matters, you know, governance, what have you, I think... There's also a lot of opportunity for those folks to pretty seamlessly help out with transactional pro bono matters, either for nonprofits or small businesses. Number five, doing pro bono builds your network across departments in the firm, in the community, and with current or potential firm clients. I think there are plenty of good networking and other career development opportunities that that come out of pro bono work. Whoever you're working with, you know, whether it's in the firm or at a, a client, I would view them just like you would any other client, um, whether it's your client or a referral organization or a legal aid organization you're working with. Developing those relationships is, is helpful. And even keeping it in from looking at it from this sort of relationship development mindset, 
if you're getting that muscle memory and working with these people and developing relationships with them, even if they're a pro bono client, that's the same skill set that you're eventually going to want to employ developing relationships with any other client. I would say that pro bono definitely opens up opportunities for you to meet associates from different groups. That is another way of just kind of getting to know people within your own firm in a way that is just natural and you know it gives you something to refer back to you know when you see them again at at a firm event or 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 whatnot. I have never really experienced pro bono taking away from any opportunities to network. I'll say actually on the on the flip side, pro bono opportunities can present a really low pressure, very genuine way of networking and relationship building that you might not really experience at a happy hour, for example. And I, I just have one story about that. We were doing an expungement clinic through a local partner here in Michigan, and the clinic was designed around having volunteer attorneys, pairing two volunteer attorneys up with one client each at a time. And you know anyone could apply to be a volunteer attorney. And so you had firm attorneys and in-house counsel and people from the defender's office and all of the above. And I just so happened to be paired with pretty senior in-house counsel at one of our biggest clients. And I had no idea who she was. I don't really work with, with that group. But, you know, it, it really presented a great opportunity to, to just tell her a little bit about myself and, and vice versa without any pretense of like networking or being, you know, trying to, to gain more business. You know, we were just really there on behalf of our clients and got to know each other genuinely as a result. And that, that client actually ended up saying really nice things about me in an email to firm leadership. And I got really nice kudos for that. So from a networking standpoint, I actually think that pro bono has been a, a net positive. Claire also talked about working on an asylum case with a partner from the bankruptcy group when she was an associate. When I asked her where pro bono fits in with networking, she got right to the heart of the matter. It's going to be a great networking opportunity if you do great work, right? And, and you impress your team and your client. Anytime you do great work, it is a good networking opportunity. Number four, make realistic assessments about the balance between billable and pro bono work, taking into account what you know about your firm and about yourself. So my approach to my practice is to do enough high-profile commercial litigation work that I can leverage the firm's resources to do the kind of pro bono work that I want to do. You will have pockets of people for whom pro bono is a much larger part of their daily life and their practice than others. And so I, I think at any firm, you should be able to find mentors and champions who value that work and, and understand how it can enhance your professional development and then sort of help you get that message out if you want to do more pro bono. Do you have any tips for people to figure out what is the right balance of time to spend on pro bono and commercial work? That is a really tough call and it is going to vary from person to person and firm to firm. So just brass tacks, right? At the end of the day, a private law firm is a business venture. And we all make choices about where we're going to invest in our time and, and the reasons why we do it. You've got to know what your capacity is for work and what feels right to you. 
So, you know, one of the things when I was thinking about this is I wish I had known how well pro bono would complement and enhance my commercial practice, in part because when I came in, I felt like in order to do the amount of pro bono work that I wanted to do, you know, several hundred hours a year, I needed to at least make the billable hour threshold requirement and then some extra. And then I felt like I was bulletproof and nobody could really give me a hard time for doing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours. And I I think I took a little bit too much upon myself. I I, I don't think the system is that harsh, but it is a matter of figuring out what what your threshold is and how what your capacity is and how much of that you want to spend doing pro bono and and how much time you need to spend on commercial work to be a good firm citizen to be the kind of firm citizen that you want to be whatever that means at your particular firm number three seek out mentors and colleagues who will support your pro bono interest and have honest conversations that help you to make your realistic assessments. I love how bold you were when you first arrived and said, I'm here. I want to do pro bono. Also, I have a client. I'd like you to take on this new relationship. I think it's a great idea. (laughs) What year was that? 2006. 2006. And you said that you found a partner, Deborah Renner, who was willing to work with you and support it. How did you find her? It's funny because Deborah was the person who interviewed me at on-campus interviews. And so I, I, Deborah was my first point of entry into the firm and I, I just adored her and she was great. And I believe I might've looked at her bio and saw pro bono work listed on that as well. And so you, you find your kindred spirits at a firm and you really try to develop that group of people that you know and trust that have, you know, the, the same types of interests that, you know, you know, you can rely on. So I found champions and mentors and and right off the bat, Deborah was willing to look into this and, and be the sponsoring partner, which was hugely important. I don't think I could have done this without a partner's green light. And I was lucky that I had both mentors who supported the pro bono work, as well as mentors and champions who were really frank with me about the economics of law firms. So sort of understanding that allowed me to make my own decisions. So you seek out people who are willing to share that type of information with you so that you can make informed choices about your career. So unsexy, but it is it is really helpful to know. And if you don't find your person at the initial interview, Albert has suggestions for finding people who do have more experience and can guide you. It seems like it would make a lot of sense for a new associate to talk to a practice leader or, you know, somebody who's a leader in their group and almost do an informational interview and say to them, would you tell me about your pro bono experience, how you've thought of your pro bono and your, how it fits into your role at the firm, which then gets you a whole lot of information, at least about how that person has approached it. I think that's a, that's a really great summary of what I'm saying. If you don't feel comfortable speaking with your practice group leaders, I think that piece of advice that you just said is also applicable one step down. So if you have a, a more senior associate that you're close to or just a friend or or kind of a peer who's who's a year or two ahead of you, I think you're, you're able to also get pretty pretty honest feedback at that level. And, and that is also absolutely fair game. I think that that could be an effective way of, of getting inside 
information. Number two, when you become a partner, your pro bono may shift. Less handling matters directly, more mentoring associates or managing projects. For, for me personally, I think the amount of time that I personally spend doing pro bono work of my choosing has decreased. I still have a few veterans clients. I still have a few clinics I, I work at, but I've made up for that in terms of supervising almost any pro bono project that our associates want to do. So if we have things that people are interested in doing, whether it's an opportunity that they bring for the, to the firm or an existing firm opportunity that someone wants to, to work on, I'm always willing to be the sort of supervising partner, partner in charge for their work. You know, I've never worked on an asylum case myself. I've supervised a handful of people who are working on asylum cases here. We had a group of associates who were interested in doing some public records requests and related litigation for an organization that they had both worked with before joining the firm. And I was able to help them bring that in as a pro bono client, supervise them through the public records request process. Me working with the clients, that, that still exists, that still happens, especially if we're doing some impact litigation. But on, on the day-to-day, you know, if you look at the number of pro bono matters I, I've worked on and built to, that's certainly increased. It's just a, a smaller number of hours contributed to each. But that's because I'm, I'm working with associates, supporting them and making sure they're getting the pro bono opportunities that they want to do. Remember how Claire described finding her pro bono mentor? Well, listen to how she describes the shift in her pro bono work since becoming a partner. There are so many more demands on your time as a partner that I think that more than anything else is is what impacts bandwidth. It's just an overall bandwidth issue, right? Because you're you're dealing with with firm administrivia in addition to your practice, in addition to the mentoring that you want to do, in addition to, you know, pushing the firm to be the best at the commercial work, the best at the pro bono work, the best at diversity and inclusion. I mean, it's just all of those things are now on your plate as a partner. And so it's it's a bandwidth issue. I've taken a slightly different approach in the sense that I am more likely to be the supervising partner on a pro bono matter that an associate wants to do. Whereas in the past, I sort of followed my own heart and tried to find things that, that I thought were interesting. And as part of my effort to try to have happier lawyers in the practice, I am more inclined when an associate comes and says, I want to do XYZ project to, to say, okay. It actually makes perfect sense. You're not the first person who said that, that when they became a partner, their method of contributing to Pro Bono to a large extent shifted to supporting, to being people's Deborah Renner. Yes. Right? Aww. That's what you just described to me, is you being someone else's Deborah Renner. That's uh, such a nice way to think about it. Wonderful. <laughs> And the number one thing new associates should know about pro bono is engaging in pro bono can make you a happier lawyer while also making an impact in your community. One of the things as a young associate that you want to understand is your relationship with pro bono and how it fits into your number one professional satisfaction because it's a tough career and Pro bono can be something that enhances your career and your overall wellness and your feeling of satisfaction in your career. Yeah. 
and you're probably going to be better at your work overall. And more effective for everyone, your, your pro bono clients, your commercial clients, a happier human overall, a better opposing counsel to deal with. <laughs> yes. We're going to go out today with Albert, who made sure that we wouldn't forget the fundamental point of doing all that pro bono. One thing that's really important to remember about pro bono is that there is a real human being or an organization on the other side of it. So far during our conversations, a lot of it has been focused on the associate experience, which is very valuable. And I think that is that is so critical, you know, to equip associates with the right mindset, you know, going into the pro bono practice. But on the other side of it, there's a real human being, right, who, who benefits tremendously from the work that you do. And I think that in the grand scheme of things, taking a moment to, to step back and reflect on that has been really valuable for me. I'll just give you a quick example. I mentioned that I just recently successfully got an expungement for one of our clients. And, you know, this is someone who had you know, one misstep many years ago. Who, who now wants to enter into education and really do exciting things with his life, but can't do so because of this record. And there was no greater feeling you know, in, my, in my time at Bodmin than that phone call right after we were before the judge where he was just expressing how, how his life has changed because of this. Attorneys are in a very unique, privileged position to make the world a better place with every non-billable hour that they commit to this work. I'm so grateful to Albert, Claire, and Matt for taking the time to reflect on their careers, for speaking so honestly, and for inspiring all of us to step up and contribute. If you are feeling inspired by the 10 things you just learned about pro bono, but you aren't quite sure where to begin, why don't you head over to PLI's pro bono page and click on Looking to Get Started. We'll link to it on the episode page. There, you'll find interactive training on working with pro bono clients. And hey, if you like this podcast, guess what? Much of that training is taught by me. Plus, you'll also find pro bono basics programs in a range of substantive areas taught by experts from around the country. It's a perfect way to start developing your pro bono vision. Thanks for listening to Pursuing Justice, The Pro Bono Files, a podcast from PLI the Practicing Law Institute. This production is dedicated to the pro bono and public interest lawyers working to improve access to justice. A special thanks goes to our producer, Daniel Pinitz, as well as our host, Alicia Aiken. Please note that the views and opinions expressed during this podcast represent those of the individuals being interviewed and not necessarily those of PLI. PLI is a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys and other professionals at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. For more information about PLI's wide-ranging curriculum of pro bono programs, visit pli.edu slash pro bono.